Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. Well, if you'll remain standing and take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 6 this morning, but I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, if you'll follow along as I begin now in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, after his brief salutation in verses 1 to 2, Paul begins uh, the actual letter to the Ephesians with a hymn of praise and thanksgiving to God. As we said last week, as he is contemplating the glorious truth that God and his love and grace planned a people who would would stand before him and who would receive blessing upon blessing from him, and, and all of this has happened in Christ, Paul just bursts out in praise and worship to God for his extraordinary plan of salvation, which he sees as a manifestation of God's glory and grace. And in the Greek text, this is just one long, continuous sentence of praise from verse 3 all the way down to verse 14. And in these verses, we have some of the most incredible truths in all of Scripture. In fact, many think that there is no section of Scripture with a greater concentration of truths than those written here. In verse 3, which we looked at last week, We have Paul's exclamation of praise, which really functions as a summary of the entire passage. Verse 3 says, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul begins by declaring that God is to be blessed, he's to be praised, and, and why is he to be praised? Well, Paul tells us, because he, God, has blessed us in Christ. Which means all the blessings Paul speaks of here are reserved specifically for for those who believe in Christ and are united with him through faith. It is in Christ that God blesses us, not apart from him. I mean, you must be in Christ to receive these wonderful blessings. And Paul says God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In other words, all the, the blessings pertaining to life in the Spirit. Every spiritual blessing 
All things that pertain to life and godliness have been given to every believer and they are all ours immediately in Christ. And lastly, Paul said, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which means the the spiritual realm, the, the spiritual dimension or the unseen world of spiritual reality. And certainly this would include heaven, but but it's more than heaven itself. The heavenly places encompass the entire supernatural realm of God, his complete domain, the full extent of his divine operation. It's, It's the invisible realm where Christ is now ruling and reigning. All the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ are safe in the heavenly places under the sovereign control of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that's why Paul tells us in Colossians that we're to seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And that brings us to verse 4. And in verse 4 through verse 14, Paul now begins to explain why God is so worthy to be praised by spelling out for us how God has blessed us. And first of all, in verses 4 to 6, our text for this morning, Paul tells us we have received the blessing of being chosen and predestined by God. And as Paul deals with these subjects, his tone is one of of worship and praise, just as it should be, because these are glorious, comforting, encouraging, and assuring truths. Let's look now at verse 4, where Paul begins by saying, even as he chose us in Christ. The first word in this sentence translated in the ESV, even as, is better translated for, because it's giving the basis for the praise. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why? For, or because, Paul said, he, that is God, chose us in Christ. And so here we are introduced to the doctrine of election, which is the foundation of all of the blessings that belong to Christians. And Paul doesn't define election in verse 4. He doesn't define predestination in verse 5, nor does he seek to defend these doctrines in any way. And he assumes that his readers are not only aware of these truths, but are convinced of them so that all he needs to do is remind them of these truths. But we need to define them, don't we? Because there's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to the glorious truth of God's sovereign election. Well, what is election? What is election? Well, let's begin this way. We all know what an election is, right? An election is a time when, when people choose who they want to fill certain political offices from the president on down. So in that sense, an election is a choice. Well, the biblical doctrine of election also speaks of a choice. A choice which God makes. And this teaching gets its name from a Greek word, the verb form of which is translated here as chose. The word chose means to to choose, to select. To choose for oneself. To select for one's own reasons or purposes. And the form of the Greek verb behind chose indicates God's totally 
independent choice. And it signifies that God not only chose by himself, but for himself. The biblical doctrine of election is God's choice before the foundation of the world of a significant portion of the human race. Individual sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be saved in and through Christ, and he moves heaven and earth to bring it to pass. Of course, we we can't fully comprehend the ways of God. But we may be sure of this, that in his wisdom, God knew that this was the way in which the greatest possible blessing would eventually come to the largest number of persons. So the doctrine of election, the, the, uh, this idea of God choosing a people for himself, is not a new idea. This is not something that was invented by John Calvin or Martin Luther or Augustine or the Apostle Paul for that matter. The election is the Bible's teaching and not man's. It's not the teaching of someone's system of theology, it is the teaching of It is the teaching of the Bible. And the Bible is a book of election. And we see this doctrine beginning in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, where out of all of the pagan people in the world, God chose Abraham from among all the men in Ur of the Chaldees to bring blessing to the nations. God chose Isaac rather than Ishmael and the other sons of Abraham. God chose Jacob rather than Esau. God chose the nation of Israel for his own possession out of all of the peoples on the face of the earth that they might be a light to the nations. Out of all the tribes of Israel, the Lord called out the tribe of Levi to be his priest. Out of all the the men of Israel, Jesus chose 12 disciples, but only 11 of them to salvation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, Paul adds that God chose what is low or insignificant and despised in the world. Why? Well, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Here in Ephesians, as in other New Testament texts, we read that God chose individuals for salvation. These believers, both Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, make up the church. And there are other examples of election, but these are enough to show that Paul is not teaching a new doctrine. This is something we see all throughout Scripture. Election, again, election is the Bible's teaching and not man's. It is, without question, a biblical doctrine, and no biblical Christian can ignore it. And so the biblical doctrine of election is God's choice in eternity past of individual sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be saved. And those whom he has chosen to save are referred to as the elect. So look back at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So before time and creation, we're told God chose us in in Christ. In other words, God put us in Christ together in his mind. He chose us, who did not yet exist, to be his own children through Christ's saving work for us, which had not yet taken place. But it was a definite decision. 
God in eternity past chose us in Christ. And by God's sovereign election, those who are saved were eternally united with Christ. And notice when God did this, before the foundation of the world. In other words, before creation even took place. And why is this significant? Well, first of all, it means that we were not an afterthought in the mind of God. It means that he set his love on us long before we ever existed or even before the world existed. And secondly, the fact that God chose us in Christ before time and before creation means that God's choice was not based on any human influence or merit. In Romans chapter 9, Paul declares that God selected Jacob over Esau Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, why? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And so God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, not because of anything in us. I mean, what could we have deserved or what did we merit before the world, before the world was made and we ever existed? The doctrine of election says that the cause of our individual salvation is God's choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world apart from any human influence or merit. God's sovereign choice of sinners is in spite of themselves so that no one can boast before him. So there's no room for pride or imagined merit. There's only room for profound humility and and praise, and thanksgiving for what God has done. And so why is anyone a Christian, we ask? Because he or she believed the gospel. But then we go on and ask, well, why did one person believe while others did not? Is it because that person was more intelligent, or more spiritual, or good? You know, is that what enabled him or her to believe when others who heard the very same message didn't believe? Well, the Bible says no. It's not because of anything in us, but because of God's sovereign choice, his eternal election of individuals to be his own people through faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is incredible news to all who believe because this is the foundation of our salvation. You know, not not something in us who are so weak and wavering, so fickle in our affections and so inconsistent in our faith. No, it's the foundation of God's own sovereign choice from eternity past. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And looking back at verse 4, we learn that God chose us in order, notice verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. Which indicates that in God's mind, when he chose us, we were unholy and condemned, and therefore deserving of nothing but judgment. But God chose us that we should be holy. And the word means set apart or separate. It speaks of people set apart from sin and a, and a condemned world to God as his own possession. The same word was used earlier in verse 2 where it's translated saints. God shows us to be holy and blameless. Blameless. 
It means without defilement or blemish. And it's a term used of sacrificial animals free from any perfection and thus acceptable as sacrifices. Blameless speaks of the total removal of sin and guilt from the believing sinner. And Paul says God chose us to be holy and blameless before him. Before him. The word before means in the presence of or in the sight of. The Greek is literally right down to the eye of. And so when Paul says God chose us to be holy and blameless before him, he is thinking about that time in the future when all believers will stand before God. And this is the idea behind the parallel passage in Colossians where Paul's goal in ministry was to present believers holy and blameless before God. It's also suggested by Paul's statement of Christ's goal of presenting the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's there in Ephesians 5. And so obviously Paul is talking about our position in Christ and not our practice. I mean, we know that in our living, we are far from the holy standard and far from being blameless. I mean, only in Christ are we holy and blameless positionally. We can stand before God because of Christ. In Him, our blame is removed and His righteousness is given to us so that God sees us as holy as His Son is holy. I mean, that is our position in Christ. And that, that's just mind-boggling. Now, our practice can and does fall short. But our position can never fall short because it is exactly the same holy and blameless position before God that Christ has. But having said that, You know, now as those who are holy and blameless in Christ, positionally, we have the responsibility of pursuing holiness practically. And Ephesians chapter 4 through 6 will teach us about that. And so while it's true that we will never be completely holy and blameless before God as long as we are in this body of sin, If we are, in fact, God's people, if we are his chosen people, then we're going to be growing in holiness. Because where there is life, there will be growth. If we are God's chosen people, if we are truly believers in Jesus Christ, we're going to be growing in holiness. And that that growth may vary at times. It may be negligible at some times. It may abound at other times. But we will be growing in holiness. And so the question is, are we? Are we? It seems that the majority of Christians today are far more concerned with happiness than they are holiness. And so we ought to examine ourselves. You know, we should ask ourselves, am I, as God intends, becoming more and more holy year by year? Have I and am I growing as a Christian? Our spiritual blessings begin with 
and are based on election. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world in order that he might make us holy and blameless before him. And loved ones, the only proper response to God's having chosen us for salvation is awe and praise and worship and obedience to God. This is a glorious truth. But there's even more to this great blessing of election. In verse 5, Paul now expands on this idea of God's choosing. You'll notice there at the end of verse 4, the words, in love. Well, those words belong at the beginning of verse 5 because it introduces the divine motive for God's elective purpose. So, in love, or in agape, in his love, his infinite, eternal, and omnipotent love, God, Paul says, predestined us. He predestined us. Now, the word predestined means to mark out, to appoint, to determine, or decide upon beforehand. In other words, to predetermine or to foreordain. That's simply what the word means. And so predestination means that God determines something in advance. And it's used that way in Acts chapter 4 about the death of Christ, where a group of believers in Jerusalem praise God for his sovereign power, saying, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So it means, predestination means that God has determined something in advance. Here in our text, God has determined something in advance for all of those he chose for salvation. Look back at verse 5. In love, he predestined us for what? Adoption. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. You see, when the Father chose the people for himself, predetermining to adopt them as his own children, it it was not out of sheer determination. It wasn't simply this cold, calculated decision that he made. No, he was motivated by his great love. And so what he did, uh, he did uh, because it was a supreme delight for him to do. In love, he predestined us, as Paul says, for adoption to himself as sons. Now, when Paul talks of us as sons, I don't want you ladies to think that he is in any way excluding women, because he's not. Usually, when using the word sons, Paul has in mind all that Christians inherit in Christ. But in Paul's day, sons would inherit from the father, while most daughters did not receive an independent inheritance. And so by saying that we are adopted as sons and relating this to all of those who are in Christ, Paul is saying that all men and women and even slaves, contrary to the norm of Paul's day, are equal members of God's family. He predestined us to adoption. Now this word for adoption specifically means to place someone 
as an adult son, to place someone as an adult son. And when Paul mentioned adoption, it would have immediately gotten the attention of his readers because in the Greco-Roman culture, adoption was one of the greatest privileges ever bestowed upon an individual. In fact, one commentator said, we must interpret the implications of our adoption, not in terms of our contemporary culture, but of the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day. The term adoption may have a somewhat artificial sound in our ears, but in the Roman world of the first century A.D., An adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was not in the smallest degree inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. And in Roman society, there were five consequences of being adopted into a family. Number one, the adopted person lost all ties to his old family. The legal and and social relationship to his natural family, if he had one, were completely severed. Number two, the adopted person was placed permanently into his new family where he gained all the rights of the natural children in this family. And that's a beautiful picture of just what happens to us at salvation. Number three, The adopted person became an heir of his new father. Even if the other children of a father were his natural children, that did not affect the adopted child's rights. He was a co-heir. In fact, sometimes he was the sole heir, if that's what the father determined. Number four, an adopted person's past was forgotten. When a person was adopted, all of his previous debts and other obligations were eradicated as if they had never existed. And he was given a new name as if he had just been born. And of course, that is the same thing that happened when we came to Christ. We were adopted into God's family. All of our past debts were canceled. We became a co-heir of all that the Son of God possesses. And all these things happened when we were adopted into God's family. You know, the cord was cut with the past. We became co-heirs with Christ of God's kingdom. All our debt of sin was wiped out. and We were legally and eternally the sons of God. And this is only possible. This is only possible because in love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, Paul says. God could have never brought us into his own family of sons. He he could never have brought us into such an intimate relationship with himself as long as we were in our sins. And so the Lord Jesus came to earth, and by his perfect sinless life, his death, burial, and resurrection, he settled the sin question to God's satisfaction once and for all. And it is the infinite value of his sacrificial atoning death that provides a righteous basis on which God can then adopt us as sons. Adoption is just a gracious blessing of God and a demonstration of his deep, deep love for us. I mean, this is absolutely staggering. I mean, think about it. Just think about it. In our natural state, as unbelievers, we were enemies of God. 
But God chose us and predestined us for adoption into his family as sons, as heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, with all the privileges and blessings of sonship, as well as all the responsibilities. I mean, this is what it means to be a son of God. And when we became Christians, our status changed from that of slaves to sons, heirs of everything the Father possesses, and that can never change. Never change. Because you see, our status with God was settled on the day that we were declared righteous through faith in Christ. But there's more here than simply a change in status. And we have a new life, a a living relationship with God in which he communes with us and sustains us on a daily basis with love, affection, and strength. Coming to Christ changes who we are because we've been adopted. We, we live with a new status, a new identity before God. You and I have, have a God who says, I love you. And when we ask why, he answers, because you're my son. But why? Because I wanted you, he says. And I came to get you. I mean, praise God that he chose us in Christ and in love predestined us for adoption into the intimacy of his own family as sons through the finished work of Christ. Now, one further note on adoption before we move on. We are reminded by this word adoption of the truth that we do not adopt ourselves. Nor do we outline to God the terms of adoption. Now, adoption is, a divine, adoption is a divine act that flows out of the abundance of God's great mercy, his great grace, and his incomprehensible love. Do you realize that God could have simply chosen to save us from sin, and, and that would have been enough? You know, to be free from sin's power and penalty, that would be glorious enough. But God goes far beyond that. And he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters, heirs, co-heirs with Christ. I mean, what more? What more can he do for undeserving sinners than bring us in to his own family? And why? Why would God do this? Well, look back at verse 5. We see that all of this, if you look at the end of the verse, is according to the purpose. So that word purpose means pleasure. So all of this was according to the pleasure of his will. This is the sovereign motivation behind our predestination. You know, it answers the question, why did he do it? Why did God do it? simply because it was his good pleasure, indicating that the choosing and predestining of his people was something that he delighted in. I mean, Paul wants us to understand that salvation comes through divine love alone. And so he says that God predestined us to be adopted as his sons according to his pleasure and will, not our pleasure and will but rather according to God's pleasure and will. You know, we've already heard this language of God choosing someone by divine will in verse 1 of this letter. And there Paul said that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the will of God. I mean, what could be more obvious to this apostle formerly named Saul? 
But he was going in one direction to arrest and kill Christians with his heart and mind bent on hostility to Christ when suddenly on the road to Damascus, Christ turned Paul around. He turned Paul around. And Paul knows that it was not his own pleasure and will to become a light to the Gentiles. No, God did something in and to Paul that the apostle recognized was beyond his own desire or choosing. And here Paul turns this language of what made him Christ's apostle to what makes believers God's children. It was according to the the purpose and pleasure of God's will. But now in verse 6, Paul tells us God's ultimate purpose in choosing and predestining a people for himself. Well, why is that? Well, because it would lead, look at verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The word blessed in this verse literally means to bestow grace. And so it could actually be translated to the praise of his glorious grace which he has graced us with in the beloved. In other words, this grace comes to us in the beloved, that is, in Christ, God's beloved Son. And of course, grace is a key theme in the book of Ephesians. I mean, the forgiveness of our trespasses is in accordance with the riches of his divine grace. That's chapter 1. It is through grace that we are saved. That's chapter 2. Paul's receiving the gospel, his calling to minister to the Gentiles, and his ability to fulfill his missionary tasks from beginning to end were due solely to the grace of God. That's chapter 3. And here in verse 6, Paul says the purpose for which we are chosen for salvation and predestined as sons was so that his redeemed children might praise his glorious grace. Why? Because God's grace is glorious. And you know, we don't get too excited about that today. Because we tend to think of salvation merely in terms of our own emotional and spiritual experience and our own spiritual blessing. And salvation is certainly for the great blessing of the believer. But what we see here is that our salvation is not primarily about us. No, God saved us with a higher motive than just our blessing. Ultimately, salvation is for the purpose of eternally glorifying God for bestowing on believers His endless and limitless grace and kindness. So yes, God's purpose in our salvation is to bring us the highest possible blessing. Absolutely. But primarily, it is to bring himself the highest possible praise, the praise of his glorious and marvelous grace. I mean, our salvation, which is by grace alone, is also to God's glory alone. I mean, this is the highest end that anything possibly could serve. The glory of God. And so we didn't gain our salvation by the merit of our doing, our background, or our choosing. It was freely given to us in Christ before God 
Because God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And in love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And our adoption is complete. We are eternally God's sons and daughters. We were predestined for this before the foundation of the world, according to the pleasure of his will. And loved ones, this ought to be the song of praise in our hearts continually. Continually. Now Paul speaks in these verses of the doctrine of election and predestination not to separate believers. He says his goal is praise to God for his glorious grace which he has graced us or freely given to us in Christ. That's his goal. And that's what election and predestination should should, uh, invoke in our hearts. Praise to God for his glorious grace that he's freely given to us in Christ. I mean, election and predestination should arouse worship and praise from the depth of our hearts because they're glorious truths. They're comforting, they're encouraging, they're assuring truths. But there are those who object to these glorious biblical truths. And I want to go through, uh, for the rest of our time together, I want to go through with you some of these objections. One objection to election and predestination is that it's unfair. You know, why would God choose certain individuals and not others? And you know, it's almost as if in our American democratic mindset, we believe that everyone has a right to be saved. Well, the important thing to remember is that no one has a right to be saved. And of even greater importance is that no one deserves to be saved. Why? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And all are worthy of eternal punishment because the wages of sin is death. And as a result, the entire human race stands guilty and condemned before a holy God. I mean, Jesus didn't have to come into the world to condemn the world. I mean, he came to to bring salvation. He didn't come to condemn the world. You know why? Because John 3.18 tells us, whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So the entire world stands condemned before a holy God. And if God were to leave us to ourselves, the the entire human race would be lost forever, condemned. And God would be perfectly just in allowing all of us to spend eternity in hell. And if you want fairness, it would have to be fairness from God's perspective. And fairness from God's perspective is perfect justice. And so if left to ourselves we'd be lost forever and God would be just in allowing us to spend eternity in hell. However, because God is merciful and gracious, because he is by nature a savior, rather than justly condemning the entire human race, he chose to save some. He chose to save a vast majority of people out of every tribe, 
tongue, and nation as a bride for his son. And in doing so, he's not being unfair to those he's not chosen. He just simply passes over them. And he allows them to have exactly what they want. And what is that? Know God and their own way. And consequently, they'll receive the judgment they rightly and justly deserve. So you see, God's choosing uh, to be gracious to some is not unfair or unjust to the others because no one is deserving of anything from God. We're not deserving of the least of his blessings, the least of his grace. The only thing that we deserve from God is judgment. And therefore, no one can object if he does not receive anything from God. And an illustration would be if a man walked up to a group of 20 or so people and he handed a $100 bill to, to five people in the group. Now, is that unfair? Talk to me. Is that unfair? Well, no, of course not. Did anyone in the group have a right to his money? Well, no, of course not. Did any of them deserve his money? Well, no. Why? Well, because the man did not owe any of them money. He simply chose to be gracious to some. Another objection to election and predestination people raise is that if God chooses who is saved, it violates our free will to choose and believe in Christ. I mean, man does have a will, but it's not free in the sense that many people suppose. Because a totally free will would be the capacity to make choices without any external constraints or coercion. And there is nothing in the Bible, absolutely nothing, that teaches human beings have this type of free will. Only God is perfectly free from all constraint. I mean, the common understanding of free will is the absolute freedom to, to do anything we choose. And this is not how the Bible presents man's will. And nor does it match reality. And here's the reason why. Man's will, like the rest of his being, is bound by his sin nature and therefore limited in capacity. The illustration would be a prisoner who has the freedom to pace up and down in his cell and even out in the, in the prison yard. But he's constrained by the walls of the prison and he can go no further, no matter how much his will might desire it. And so it is with the natural man or the unsaved man. Because of sin, man is imprisoned within a cell of corruption and wickedness that permeates the very core of our being. There is not one part of our being that isn't touched and tainted by sin. Every part of man is in bondage to sin. Our bodies, our minds, our wills. I mean, Jeremiah 79 tells us the, the state of man's heart. It is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. In our natural, unregenerate state, 
The Bible tells us we are carnally minded, not spiritually minded. And it tells us that to be carnally minded is death. You can read about that in Romans chapter 8. The Bible teaches that without Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. So we are spiritually dead men. Being dead certainly affects one's capacity to choose, doesn't it? And so the Bible is clear that in his natural state, man is incapable of choosing God. He does not have the free will to choose God because his will is not free. It, it, is, just con- it is constrained by his nature just as the prisoner is constrained by his self. Jesus said in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So no one can come to Christ for salvation unless the Father draws them. And so if the decision whether to trust in Christ is impossible without God's divine intervention by drawing, well then guess what? Our will is not totally free in the way that people understand it today. Do we have a will? Most certainly we do. We have a will that Scripture clearly recognizes. We have a will in the sense that we are capable of making moral choices. But unsaved man does not truly have a free will as popularly defined. We have a will, we can make decisions, but apart from God, our will is captive to sin. And left to ourselves, we would never choose God. Man is only able to choose God because God has made that choice possible. You know, Jesus said that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And that everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die. The Bible's frequent commands to the unsaved to respond to the Lord clearly indicate the responsibility of man to exercise his own will in believing. But the Bible is also very clear that no person receives Jesus Christ as Savior who has not been chosen by God. And Jesus gives both truths in one verse in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We see the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, so you heard the truth, and then what does he say? And believed in him. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So God's sovereign election and man's responsibility to exercise his will uh, to believe in Jesus Christ seem opposite and irreconcilable truth. And from our limited human perspective, they absolutely are. But though we may not understand this, we must fully embrace it. Why? Well, because the Bible clearly teaches both. And besides, we embrace other truths that are mysteriously woven together, like the deity and humanity of Christ and the divine human authorship of Scripture. I mean, this is one of those things that's, uh, this is one of the secret things that belong to the Lord our God. It's a mystery that we don't fully comprehend. 
I mean, someone once asked Charles Spurgeon how he reconciled God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And Spurgeon responded, I never reconciled two friends. Someone asked another pastor about this problem, and he replied, that's not my problem. That's God's problem. And for God, it's not a problem. Just believe both truths and let God harmonize them. And so in the Bible, God repeatedly calls on us to exercise our will and trust in Christ for salvation. And we should pursue obedience to those commands regardless of how well or, or, or how, how we don't understand election and predestination because the Bible says that God commands all people everywhere to repent. And so if you desire to be saved, then come to Christ. If you desire to be saved, then come to Christ. Repent, turn from your sin, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to be saved, come to Christ. If a person is lost, it is because he chooses to be lost, not because God desires it. The blame does not rest on God. It rests on those who do not believe in him, who reject his kindness, his love, his mercy, and his grace. They willfully reject God's offer of salvation, and so they will bear full responsibility for their own condemnation. Another objection to election and predestination is that some people think this means God chose and predestined others for hell. Well, that thought is totally unworthy of God. The Bible never teaches that that God chooses men to be lost. And the fact that he chooses some to be saved does not imply in Scripture that he arbitrarily condemns all the rest. As one man said, he never condemns men who deserve to be saved. There are none. But he does save some who ought to be condemned. In Romans 9.22, When Paul speaks of unbelievers there, he simply refers to them as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The Greek verb translated prepared in verse 22 is passive. And this tells us that God is not the subject doing the preparing. I mean, there is the very clear sense in in this use of the passive voice to relieve God of the responsibility and to put it fully on the shoulders of those who refuse to obey his word and believe in his son. In other words, God is not the one who has prepared them for destruction. They are prepared for destruction by their own disobedience and rebellion, and not by some arbitrary decree of God. God is not seen specifically as preordaining them to destruction. God does not make men sinful. But he leaves them in the sin that they have chosen, letting sin and evil and arrogance run its full course, giving them then what they deserve. And it is, in that sense, pure justice. But then in Romans 9.23, when Paul describes the elect, those that God has chosen, He speaks of them as vessels of mercy, which he, God, 
has prepared beforehand for glory. In verse 23, the Greek verb translated prepared is the active voice, which means the subject doing the action, the subject doing the preparation is specifically God. He has prepared beforehand for glory. God does not prepare vessels of wrath for destruction. But he wants us to know he does prepare vessels of mercy, those he has chosen for salvation and for glory. And so God prepares vessels of mercy for glory, but he does not prepare men for destruction. They do this for themselves by their own unbelief. And so those who are perishing do so because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You know, in all of our thinking about election and, and, and predestination, and why we're saved and another is not, we have to continually focus on this. We don't deserve to be Christians. We do not deserve to be chosen or called or saved or transformed or heaven-bound. We don't deserve any of that. That is all mercy. It's all mercy. It is all God's undeserved merit and favor. In other words, it is all of grace. You see, election and predestination let God be God. I mean, he is sovereign. That is, he can do as he pleases, though he never pleases to do anything that is unjust. And if left alone, all men would be lost. And so, doesn't God then have the right to show mercy and grace to some? Another objection to election and predestination is that some think this means that there will be people in heaven who don't want to be there, and there'll be people in hell who wanted to be saved but couldn't because they were not elect. Well, look. It's not as though some go kicking and screaming to heaven because they were chosen against their will. And it's not as though others are desperately crying out to him for salvation and he rejects them because he hasn't chosen them. The doctrine of election properly recognizes that apart from God's supernatural work in the life of a sinner, men will always choose to reject God and rebel against him. So those whom God does not choose continue doing exactly what they want. They rebel against God and try to stay as far away from him as possible. So he simply allows them to continue the path they've freely and willfully chosen. Again, consequently, they receive the just punishment that is due them. But the doctrine of election also correctly recognizes that God intervenes in the lives of the elect and so works in their lives through the Holy Spirit that they gladly, that they willingly respond in faith to him. As Jesus said in John 10, because they are his sheep, they hear his voice and what? Follow him. Because they are his sheep, they hear his voice and follow him. The Father draws them and they willingly come to Christ. And those whom God chooses are beneficiaries of his sovereign grace and mercy and those he does not choose, those he passes over, receive the justice they've earned. 
And so while the elect receive God's perfect grace, the non-elect receive God's perfect justice. And there's one more objection I want to deal with at length, but before I get to that, I want to mention just a few others. First of all, some object to election because they think it's, it's the height of arrogance for a person to claim that he or she has been chosen to salvation. They think that uh, that is a claim uh, to be worth more or, or have done something better than, than other people. But loved ones, election does just the opposite. Because it eliminates all boasting. Because election means that salvation is utterly of God. As Paul said, he chose, he predestined, according to the pleasure of his will, and this to the praise of his glorious grace, and not to our glory. So that's, I mean, that, that's just, that, that objection just doesn't stand, because election absolutely eliminates all reason for boasting. Others object because they say election leads people to think that, well, you know, since I'm elect and you know, secure my salvation. I'll be saved regardless of whatever I do, so I'm just going to enjoy myself and sin all I want. Well, first of all, a person who would say that has probably never been born again. Or if they have, they're a brand new Christian and they know absolutely nothing about what the Bible says. Because the Bible says that everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Election does not encourage people to sin, just the opposite. Paul says God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? What does it say? That we should be what? What? Holy and blameless before him. So far from encouraging sin, the doctrine of election forbids it and instead lays on us the necessity of holiness. Others object because they say the doctrine of election stifles missionary and evangelistic activity. After all, you know, if God has chosen to save some, then they'll be saved whether or not anyone takes the gospel to them. So why even bother? Why even evangelize? Well, this overlooks the, the, the clear truth of Scripture that hearing and believing the gospel is the means God uses to save those that he has chosen to save. I mean, Paul believed in taught election. Yet he was the first great missionary of the church. I mean, he was a zealous like no other missionary in his endeavors. Why? Because he knew that God had chosen to save people through the gospel, and so Paul proclaimed it boldly and, and, and widely, and, and he was persecuted for it. In fact, he said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. I mean, Paul endured persecution so that the elect will be saved because the elect cannot be saved without hearing and believing the gospel because as the scripture says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The doctrine of election frees us to share the gospel without pressure or fear of failure. When we share the gospel clearly, we've been obedient and that is a success. And of course the results are left to God. And number eight, the, the final, uh, or number five, the final objection I want to deal with is probably one of the most common. And these people would acknowledge that we're chosen. And quite honestly, you cannot get around the fact that we are chosen. Because it is so clearly taught in Scripture. 
for he chose us in Christ. Can't get any plainer than that. So you can't get around the fact that uh, the Bible teaches that God chose us. Because it's, it's clearly taught all throughout Scripture. But these folks will say that God's choice was based upon his foreknowledge. And they would turn our attention to Romans 8, 28, and 29. So why don't you turn there real quick. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Hey, could one of the ushers grab me a bottle of water, please? Okay, thank you. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 20, or verse, I'm sorry, verses 29 and 30. So look at those verses. Romans 8, 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And they maintain from this text that in eternity past, God chose the elect on the basis of his foreknowledge of those who would in time believe in Christ. And if you uh, weren't going to believe, then he wouldn't choose you. Loved ones, this is a position that absolutely cannot be supported from Scripture. Because there are a number of things wrong with this view. First of all, it is an incorrect interpretation of Romans 8.29. Look at the verse. Thank you, Jim. Look at the verse. It does not say that God foreknew that certain people or what certain people would do, does it? Does it? You could talk to me. <laughs> In fact, it's not speaking about human actions at all, is it? It's speaking entirely of God and what God does. In fact, of all the terms in those two verses, uh, they're all like that. God foreknew, God predestined, God called, God justified, God glorified. Foreknowing or foreknowledge does not mean here to know about future events in advance, even though God does know all things. He knows all things in all times past, present, and future concerning all his creatures and creation. And there is absolutely nothing hidden from his sight. And and he, contrary to the heresy of the open theists, is not presently learning, learning nor stunted in his knowing. Foreknowledge is not a reference simply to God's omniscience. That in eternity past, he knew who would come to Christ. And so on that basis, he chose them. Well, you know what that means? That means that our salvation, our election, is based upon the choices that we make, which, may, which means the ground of our salvation is in ourselves and our merit, our actions, our works, instead of in God's sovereign mercy and grace. Look at verse 29. It says, whom he foreknew. Whom he foreknew. It means God foreknows people. The object of his foreknowledge is not the actions of certain people, but the people themselves. A particular group of people. 
The word foreknew here speaks of God's predetermined choice to set his love on us, establishing an intimate relationship with us and all those he has sovereignly chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It speaks of a predetermined intimate relationship as when God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That cannot mean foreseen. It must refer to a predetermined choice by God. It it is the knowing of of, of predetermined intimate relationship. Jesus spoke of the same kind of knowing when he said in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd, I know my own. The word know is the key. In Scripture, to know often carries the idea of special intimacy. And it's frequently used of an intimate love relationship. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 17, it says, Cain knew his wife and she conceived. Now that doesn't mean he knew who she was or knew her name or where she lived. It means he knew her in the sense of an intimate relationship, the most intimate of relationship. That's why she conceived. You remember Joseph was surprised when Mary was pregnant because she had never, he had never what? Known her. He had never had an intimate relationship with her. In Amos chapter 3 verse 2, God said, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Well, does he mean that they're the only family he knows anything about? Of course not. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I know them. Jesus used the same word when he warned in Matthew 7, 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, look, Jesus was not saying that he had never heard of those unbelievers. He knew perfectly well their character and their actions. He means that he had never had an intimate relationship with them as their Savior and Lord. But of believers, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. And so to be foreknown in in Romans 8.29 involves being chosen by God to an intimate love relationship. It's to have him set his love upon you in eternity past. It is a predetermined, foreordained love relationship born in the eternal purpose of God. That's whom he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew is therefore virtually equivalent to whom he foreloved. Foreknowledge is sovereign, distinguishing Love. It, it's virtually the same as set your affections on and, and choose for your own. And so in Romans 8.29, when it says that those whom he foreknew, it means those whom God knows, or that he knows his own people in the sense that he chooses them and loves them in an intimate relationship which he established in eternity past. It is simply not true that God knows who will and who will not receive Christ, and on that basis he chooses them. Oh, he knows all things. But it is not on that basis that he chooses them. 
I mean, this is a, again, this is a position that cannot be supported from Scripture. Secondly, God's choice is first and foundational. Because if God were to have looked down the corridors of time to see all of those who were going to choose him, guess what? He would see no one. He would see no one. And I say that because without God's election, no one would ever turn to him. If salvation ultimately rests upon the foreseen responses of fallen human beings to the invitation of the gospel, no one would ever be saved. Why? Well, because Romans 3, 9 through 12, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I mean, we cannot seek him and couldn't find him if we did because we're lost. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were spiritually dead and incapable of responding to God on our own. Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The natural mind cannot submit to God's will. It's at enmity with God. It's hostile toward God. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, The natural person or the unbeliever does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly or foolishness to him. Why? For he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Apart from the working of the Spirit of God, we cannot accept or even understand the Word of God or any spiritual thing for that matter. And on top of all of that, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And as John said, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world is guilty before God. And no one is seeking after God. Men do not seek God on their own. They seek their own will and their own way. And once again, if God left us to ourselves, all of us would continue in our rebellion and reject Christ, and the entire human race would be lost forever. And so this leaves only one possible way for man to be saved. Salvation has to be holy from God. And it is. Salvation, the Bible says, is what? Of the Lord. If anyone was going to be saved, God had to take the initiative. I mean, God is always the initiator. Man is the responder, always. If anyone was going to be saved, God had to take the initiative. He had to choose some, and praise God, he did. He did. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. 
That all happened in eternity past. And then in time, the Father drew us and saved us. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. The cause of our individual salvation is not found in ourselves, loved ones. God shows us not on the basis of anything we ourselves have said or done or would do or not do or would ever be. Our salvation comes to us without any human cause. A.W. Tozer said, Salvation is from our side a choice. From the divine side, it is a seizing upon, an apprehending, a conquest by the Most High God. Our accepting and willing are reactions rather than actions. The right of determination must always remain with God, and it certainly does. May God graciously chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. That is the only reason anyone ever comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And so the question naturally arises, how do we know who's been chosen from the foundation of the world? We don't. We don't need to know. That's only God's business. That's why we take the good news of of salvation through Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, calling upon all people everywhere to repent and receive God's gift of grace. 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us that we're to plead with people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God before it's too late. I mean, we cannot know who God has chosen to salvation. That, that is God's business. But we are to present the gospel to all people, knowing that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And that all those who come to Jesus, he will in no way cast out. Isn't that wonderful news? You know, many Christians object to the doctrine of election the first time they hear it. But as they think more about it, as they reflect upon it as the biblical doctrine that it is, most believers will admit that God was in fact at work in their lives, drawing them to himself long before they were even aware of it. And they recognize that. And they recognize that if God had not intervened, they would have just continued in their unbelief. And so they've come to see that the hand of God was working in big ways and little ways. And and that became more evident in hindsight. And so our position in the heavenlies opens us to every spiritual blessing in Christ. And we have been chosen before time, and we have been chosen before time began because of his love. I mean, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons according to the pleasure of his will. And our adoption is complete. We're we're eternally sons and daughters. And the choice is not due to anything in us, but because of Jesus. I mean, he is everything. And this choice gives us great reason to rejoice and, and praise in our hearts for his glorious grace with which he has graced us in the Beloved. 
And so in closing, instead of focusing on God choosing some and and passing over others, we should stand in awe that God offers grace to any of us. Because you see, the wonder is that not some are saved and others are not. The absolute wonder is that anybody is saved at all. Because we all deserve nothing but judgment. And listen, this doctrine is not given to confuse us or to make us question God. It's not given to upset us. Oh, quite the opposite. This doctrine is given to make us thankful. This doctrine is given to make us so thankful that we fall on our faces before God and say, God, thank you. Thank you that you had mercy upon me. Thank you that you chose me and made me one of your own. And the the glory of that choice should fill us with gratitude and wonder and absolutely empty us of any pride and self-righteousness. It should put us in awe of our God and, and humble us and cause us to love and and treasure him more and more and more. In fact, this should cause us to fall on our faces in worship and adoration and cry out with Paul in Romans eleven thirty three to 36, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsel? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That is the ultimate goal of God's redemptive plan. I mean, the the whole unfolding of the plan of God is not so much for the salvation of man as it is for the glory of God. I mean, who else deserves the highest praise and honor? And who else deserves our ultimate devotion? I mean, loved ones, this is why God created the universe. This is why He ordained history. This is why He sent His Son. This is why you and I exist for the glory of God. For the glory of God. And God's glory should be our sole and constant desire. And my prayer is that you leave here today with hearts full of praise and adoration, thanking God for all that he has done for us in Christ. I mean, this this should just change how we view our salvation because salvation in this country has become so trivialized because it's been relegated to signing a card or walking to an altar or praying a prescribed prayer as if it's some kind of magical potion. No, salvation is much more glorious than that. Far more glorious than that. You say, well, I, I just don't comprehend all these truths. Well, welcome, to the, welcome, I mean, welcome in the boat. Neither do I. These things are a mystery. But this is what the Bible teaches, and this is what we must embrace and obey. Why? For the glory of God. For the glory of God. And so today, I mean, if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ alone, come to faith in Christ.
I'm pleading with you right now to turn from your sin, to turn from your religiosity, to turn from the phoniness, the phony life you've been living, and make a beeline to Jesus Christ. Come to Christ and put your faith and trust in Him alone for salvation. But, well, maybe I'm not elect. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. And those of us who are in Christ, we'll praise Him now and throughout eternity. Amen. Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.